Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 9. Some of you may be familiar with the name Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson is the founder of Prison Fellowship, and earlier in his life, he was Richard Nixon's close assistant during his presidential campaign and his years in office, but Colson built this reputation of being ruthless in his dealings with people. In fact, he was frequently referred to as Nixon's hatchet man, those who handled He was the one who handled the president's dirty work. In fact, one person described him, and this is recorded, one person described him saying that he would be willing to walk over his own grandmother if that was what was needed. So it's not surprising then that after Colson spent his time in prison, that when he came out, and when he said that he had given his life to Christ and that he was different now, that people looked at that with skepticism. People heard this testimony, and they were thinking about this, and they were basically saying, yeah, right. We've seen you before this. We know you've been time in prison. Even though you claim that your life is different, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. After he served his jail term, he began a ministry. And as he began this ministry called Prison Fellowship, many people were skeptical, and initially people didn't want to support it, and people did not want to give to it, and they didn't really believe that it was legitimate. But a few, group of, a few people, this group of people, rallied around him and basically went before him and vouched for him. They basically said, yes, this, this change in his life is legitimate. It is real. And as a result of that, there were hundreds and maybe even thousands of people who came to know Christ through what is known as prison fellowship. But what is interesting about this is that his change was met with skepticism. There were people, when they heard about this transformation, did not believe him. And it was not until there was this group of people who came around him who said, yes, we believe this change is real, that people actually began to believe and support him. When we come to Acts chapter 9, we read of one of the greatest life transformations that has ever taken place. We look at the life of Saul, and we've been seeing over the past couple of chapters what Saul's life has been like, responsible for the stoning and the death of Stephen, is responsible for Christians being drugged from their home and thrown in prison, responsible for death of other Christians, responsible for the scattering of, of Christians from Jerusalem to surrounding areas, people fearing for their lives. And then in chapter 9, we see something happen. We see a transformed life. We, we see a change take place that is met with skepticism. What I want to do this morning is simply walk through Acts chapter 9, at least the, the majority of Acts chapter 9, and I, I want us just to see kind of the high points in this narrative. I, I want us to notice what takes place and what, what, what the change is and how this change is brought about and how Paul responds to this. Now, If you have your bulletin on the back of it, you'll notice an outline. This is where we're going to be walking through this just verse by verse. But before we do, many people wonder, why the name change? Here he's referred to as Saul. Throughout the rest of the majority of the New Testament, he's referred to as Paul. Why? 
Some people like to think that it's simply because God changed his name because of this life change that took place in Paul. He's a new person. God gave him a new name. And as nice as that sounds, it's not accurate. Sorry to ruin it for you. What really happened is Paul, Saul, excuse me, is the Hebrew name. And at the early part of his life up to this point, his dealings are with Jews, with Hebrews. God's plan for Paul's life was a ministry to Gentiles. His Gentile name or his Greek name was Paul. And so the change in name is simply a Hebrew name versus a Greek name. And it changed to signify to hopefully open doors as he began to minister into the Gentile community. And so we're going to use both names. You're going to hear me call him Saul. You're going to hear me call him Paul. I want us to understand these two names can be used interchangeably. Let's begin walking through. I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, think about this. He is breathing murderous threats against Christians. In fact, he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I want you to, I want you to see the picture. Paul or Saul, whichever name you want to use, still hates Christians. At this moment, he still is persecuting the church. His desire is to arrest Christians, throw Christians in prison, and even from the description of murderous threats, he would be okay with more Christians being put to death. His goal is to completely remove Christians and Christianity and church from this region of the world. That is his goal, and it's not enough for him to do this in Jerusalem. He has now received permission and power and authority to go into surrounding areas and go around and find Christians, and if he finds them, to arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem, and throw them in prison. This is the goal, the aim of Saul. Not a nice guy. We're going to learn as we go through the chapter 9 that Christians feared him. Christians knew him. He had garnered this reputation of, of hating Christians and killing Christians and arresting Christians and persecuting Christians. He was known, not just in Jerusalem, but in all the surrounding area. I mean, how bad do you have to be for everyone in the surrounding area to know how bad you are? There was not email, Facebook, Twitter. Y'all know what that is, right? All right. The text message, none of, I mean, you had, in order for that reputation to spread, you had to be pretty bad. But in the midst of this, you see this transformation. All right, here's number one if you're taking notes. I want you to notice Paul, the fact that Paul experienced conviction. So verse three, as he traveled, he was nearing Damascus, and a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Just a couple of points from these two verses. One, it's interesting that while Paul was on his way to arrest Christians and kill Christians and to persecute the church, it is then that he had an encounter with Christ. See, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ was not on Paul's agenda for this day. He did not wake up that morning, walk outside and say, you know what, I hope as I'm traveling today, I have an encounter with Christ. His goal that day was to persecute Christians, kill Christians, arrest Christians, to stop the spread of Christianity, to stop the growth of the church. His encounter with Christ was not on his agenda. This encounter was God-ordained. 
This was a God-ordained event, and God did not look down on Saul and say, you know what, I see how good of a person you are. I want you on my side. I want you on my team. That, that was not it, right? I mean, he is doing everything he can to stop Christianity, to kill Christians, to persecute Christians, and it is in that moment while he is on the road to go and do that very thing that Christ intervenes in his life. See, what you and I have to understand is that we can look at the life of Paul and we can say, you know what, I wish my conversion was that drastic. And while I understand that none of you this past week have been out trying to get Christians thrown in prison and you've not been having as your goal to kill Christians, you, you and I both need to understand that our conversion is just as dramatic Because apart from Christ, before your salvation, while you may not have been going to kill Christians, you were still directly opposed to God. You were living in sin. You were running from God. The Bible says that you were the enemy of God, deserving the divine and just wrath of God. You were the enemy of God. And in that moment, when you are living this life as the enemy of God, God intervened in your life. God came into your life, and he did not look down on you. I'm sorry to break it to you and say, you know what? I see how good of a person they can be. I sure want them on my team. Christianity would be better with them. That wasn't how it happened. In fact, the Bible says that while you are dead in your trespasses and sin, that God demonstrated his love for you in sending Christ to the cross. When did Christ look at you and determine to send When did God look at you and determine to send Jesus Christ to the cross on your behalf? When you were in your sin. When you were dead in your trespasses. When your heart was dark. When you were living in rebellion to God. When you were doing everything except what God wanted you to do. When you were the enemy of God. When you were deserving the wrath of God. It is in that moment that God looked and said, I love them. I'm going to send my one and only son to die. Your conversion is just as dramatic as Paul's. But what I want you to notice in these two verses is the conviction that takes place. Notice what he says, why are you persecuting me? I mean, Christ comes to him and he confronts his sin. Notice that Jesus did not ask Paul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't ask him, why are you persecuting Christians? What does he say in verse 4? Why are you persecuting me? See, people who say that they love Jesus but not the church grossly misunderstand how Jesus views the church. People who say that they are committed to Jesus but not to the church fail to understand that the church and Jesus are not two items that we are free to dissect from each other. When he was persecuting the church and when he was persecuting Christians, Jesus looked at that and said, you are persecuting me, which means a commitment to Jesus and a commitment to Christ naturally leads to a commitment to the church. We cannot dissect those two. Why? Because we cannot say that we love Jesus but hate his bride, the church. We cannot claim to sit back and and worship Jesus but neglect the bride for which Jesus died. They are connected. They are one. And so when when Paul is confronted by Jesus, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Paul clearly understood that his persecution of the church and his persecution of Christians was a direct persecution on Jesus Christ himself. It should lead us to a greater commitment to the church. We should look at that and say, if this is how Christ views the church, then I must view the church in the exact same way. 
As Christ is confronting the sin that is evident in Paul's life, there is conviction. Can you imagine being Saul in this? I mean, can you imagine, I was reading verse 3, if you imagine that there's a suddenly a light from heaven that's flashing around him, you hear a voice but you see no one speaking, how would that, what would that be like? Scary? Terrified? Well, we're going to see that response here in just a moment, but this conviction leads to something. Number two, I want you to notice that Paul was converted. Verse 5, who are you, Lord, he said. And again, Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So again, see the connection between the persecution of the church and the persecution of Jesus himself. But what is interesting is how Saul refers to him. Notice verse 5, who are you, what's the next word? Lord. He answered his own question. It's almost like he's looking to him. He's, a, he's scared. He's terrified of this event that's taking place. He knows who it is. Who are you, Lord? What is interesting about this word Lord is he is acknowledging the place of Christ over himself. Even in this moment when he's hearing the voice from heaven, he instantly knows that he is to submit to the Lord. In this moment, he understands as his conviction comes that now he has a response he has to make. He can either submit to the Lord or he can rebel against the Lord. But this led to his conversion. We're going to see more about this in a moment. Number three, Paul's conversion led to obedience. Notice verse six. So he says, who are you, Lord? In verse five, Jesus answers, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. Let's pause right there. This point is always the case. True conversion always leads to true obedience. True conversion always leads to obedience. That's why Jesus in John 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why? Because true faith in Christ, true love for Christ, true salvation that comes by way of Christ directly leads to obedience to Christ. This conversion was not just something that happened internally but had no effect on his life externally. The internal change that took place led to an outward change of obedience. I mean, he went from persecuting Christians, as we've seen, and we're going to see in a moment, to proclaiming Christ. Paul, after his conversion, did what he was told to do. You see the command in verse 6, and then you see the obedience in verse 8. But what I want you to notice is that this obedience is not influenced by circumstances. At this exact moment, when the Lord tells him what to do, to go to this city and wait, there's two interesting things about this. One, he's blind. And he doesn't know whether this blindness is temporary or whether it's permanent. All he knows is, I can't see. His obedience to God in verse 8 of getting up and going to the city was not determined by the circumstances. See, far too often you and I, our obedience, our level of obedience to God is dictated by how comfortable or uncomfortable our circumstances are. If things are going well, then we live in obedience. If there are trials in our life, well, then our obedience is a little bit shaky. One of the things that we learn about true conversion in the life of Saul is that true conversion led to obedience, but that level of obedience was not influenced by the by the circumstances. He had just lost his sight, but he obeyed. 
The second thing that's interesting in that verse is he's told to go to a city, and, God, and Jesus tells them, I'll tell you what to do when you get there. You know what you and I like to do? Okay, God, I'll go, but I want to know what's, what's in that city. What are you going to want me to do when I get there? God, I want a list of how all this is going to play out. God, I want you to, I want you to detail this out for me. And then once I know everything, I'll consider obeying you. Isn't that, do you all ever do that? Half of you are lying. <laughs> what, what we see from Paul is a willingness to obey despite circumstances and a willingness to obey despite not having all the information. There are times in your life and times in my life where God will call us to action. There are times in the life of our church where God will call us to a mission. There are times in your family where God will call you and lead you and guide you, and it's clear in your heart and your mind that there is something that God wants you to do. But in that moment, you may not have all the information, and in that moment, the circumstances may not be exactly right, but in that moment, you have a decision to make. Will I obey and trust God, or will I lean on my own understanding? Will I trust that God knows what he is doing and that he will lead and that he will guide and that he will provide? Or am I going to say, God, if you give me all the information and if you change my circumstances, then I will obey. See, the kind of obedience that God is looking for from you and looking for from me is an obedience that says, I don't care if I have all the information, I will obey. And I don't care if my circumstances are exactly right, I will obey. And it is that kind of obedience that God uses and God blesses. I mean, why was the life of Paul used in such a dramatic fashion? I mean, why was the life of Paul used to make such a huge impact on the church and on Christianity and not just here in this region of the world, but all regions of the world? Why? Maybe it was because he was willing to obey when he did not have all the information and he was willing to obey even though circumstances were not exactly right. This is the pattern of Paul's life. Later in his life, he cries out to God, God, I have this thorn in my flesh. Three times he prays God to remove it. The circumstances are not exactly right. The circumstances are not what he wants, but... He says, God, I'm going to obey regardless. When is the last time you obeyed when you didn't have all the information? When we see this with kids, right? We tell them to do things, and they're like, why? And our response is, because. Y'all never responded like that, did you? I mean, we, we understand this, but understand that in your life, I mean, you could have been saved for 50 years. It doesn't matter. There's going to be things that God calls you to do, and in your mind, you're thinking, I want all the information, and i got to wait for the circumstances to be right. And what God is saying is just obey. Just do it. Just do what you're called to do. But that's hard. And it's for that reason that God will bring other people into our lives. Notice number four. God put faithful people in Paul's life. Verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight. And the Lord said to him, and the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. I love this response by Ananias because it is so honest. Look at verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Is that a valid response? 
Yes. This guy's killed Christians. That's where you want me to go? You want me to go to his house? It's a trap, God. You don't really know what's happening. I mean, I've heard how he has arrested Christians and persecuted the church, and now he is here with all the authority he needs to find any Christian he can find to take them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison. That's where you want me to go. Honest response, valid response, but notice how the Lord responds to him. I love the first word of God's response. But the Lord said to him, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. Go. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Those verse 17. So Ananias left. You see the obedience again in Ananias? So Ananias left and entered the house, and he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Now, catch this. Don't miss this. So in verse 13 and 14, he's saying, it's a trap. God, do you not know who this individual is? And then down in verse 17, Brother Saul, what's happened? He goes in verse 13 and 14 from doubting what's taken place to in verse 17 saying, I believe. This is my brother in Christ. This individual who has the reputation of killing Christians now is my brother in Christ. He went from doubting to believing, from fearing to trusting, from not really thinking God knew what he was doing to now he's understanding God. Okay, I get it. You're in control. See, in our lives, as we're striving to live out our obedience to God, God will bring people into our lives, faithful people into our lives to help and to encourage. He will bring people into our lives to push us into a correct response and to guide us in our obedience. But it requires that obedience. As a follower of Christ, understand this. There are going to be times that God asks you to do things that do not make sense. I've got a missionary friend who a couple years ago left and went to be a missionary and serve full-time and live in a country that is controlled not just by Islam but by radical Islam. Does that make sense? I mean, why would you do that? Now, let me add in, he has five children all under the age of seven. Or eight. Does that make sense? I mean, are you going to take five children into this area where there's this real threat of death? I mean, where simply for being a believer, for simply owning a Bible, simply telling someone what you believe, your life is in jeopardy, and not just your life, but the life of your spouse and the life of your kids. Does it make sense to walk into an environment like that and say, I want people to know about Jesus so much that I'm willing to walk into this situation, and even though there is risk, and even though there is danger, to do what God has called me to do? See, it takes a trust in who God is. If you do not trust God completely, you will never be willing to obey God completely. Your obedience to God is directly connected to whether or not you trust God And if you claim to trust God, but yet you are not willing to be completely obedient to God, then the reality is there's something wrong in your level of trust to him, right? Because if we honestly say, God, you know what is best, and God, you see what's happening, and God, you can work all things together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your name. God, if you truly know what is best, then I will obey you completely because we have to acknowledge we don't know 
what is best. And the people that are unwilling to obey God completely, you can trace it back to the truth that they don't really trust God completely. When I go back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's that next phrase? Do not lean on your own understanding. I mean, aren't you at a crossroads to where you can either go down the path of trusting in the Lord or you can go down the path of leaning on your own understanding, but you cannot do both. Because the path of your own understanding says, I want all the information. The path of your own understanding says, I need to understand how this is going to work out. God, if I'm going to obey, I need to know ahead of time how you're going to work this out. Rather, trust in God the true trust in God that leads to complete obedience to God says, you know what, I don't have to know, I trust. And God, if you're calling me to do this, I'm gonna follow you and I'm gonna obey you because I trust you. And I don't know how this is gonna work out, but God, I believe that you will work it out. And I don't know how this good and bad can all work together for good, but God, I trust because of your word that you said this, that it will. I trust you, so I will obey you. How is your level of trust this morning in God? I mean, how is your level of trust in who God is and what God has said? Are you truly willing, because of your trust in God, to obey God and to trust that God will bring faithful people into your life to guide you? Let me give you number five. Paul wanted others to know about Jesus. Paul wanted others to know about Jesus. In verse 18 through verse 22, you see what's happened. Ananias has come in. Verse 18, the scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, which is this public demonstration of his faith in Christ. After taking some food, verse 19, he regained his strength. Verse 20, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Why? Why would he begin immediately proclaiming Jesus? Because he now understands this name and this person that he has been persecuting really is the answer. This Jesus really is who these people need. He basically is standing up and saying, I know I've been persecuting Jesus, and I know I've been killing the followers of Jesus and arresting the followers of Jesus, but God has done a work in my heart, and I now understand I was wrong. This, This Jesus that I've been persecuting, he is the one true God, and he is your only hope of salvation, and he is the only source of eternal life. He He's completely changed. I mean, in the life of Paul, you can really see that he's a new creation, right? The old has passed away and everything has become new. He's gone from killing Christians to pointing people to Christ. He's gone from persecuting Christ to telling people that they need Christ. He's gone from from refusing to believe that Jesus is the one true God to walking into the synagogue and saying he is the one true God. See, salvation changes you. Salvation is not about going to church, and salvation is not simply about being baptized. Salvation is about a heart transformation that takes place in those who truly have given their life to Christ. Number six, Paul faced threat of death. I just want to mention this. Verse 23, after many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. Again, picture the change. He's on his way, on this journey to arrest and possibly kill Christians, and now as a Christian, He's fearing for his life. On his way to put Christians, to to remove Christianity from the region, and now as a Christian, people are wanting to remove him from the region, from the world. 
But their plot, verse 24, their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. You know how we know Paul's conversion was real at this point? I mean, obviously we can read the rest of the New Testament and kind of know, but you know how it's real? His opponents believed it. Those who were following him three or four days earlier are now wanting to kill him. There's this change. Number seven, Paul proclaimed Jesus even though people doubted him. Verse 26, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And that, again, honest response. So how would you have responded? Sitting around as the disciples, having a meal, Saul comes walking in. Would you have welcomed him? No, I wouldn't have. I mean, notice what they say. They were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. What are they believing? It's a trap. He is simply coming in, posing as a Christian to get us all here, to lure us all out. And then when we're all here and he knows who we all are, then he's going to say, gotcha. He's going to change. He's going to arrest us all. But there was an individual, verse 27, named Barnabas. Barnabas is a name that means encouragement, son of consolation. And he comes alongside Saul and says, you know what, Saul, I will vouch for you. I will take a risk. And throughout the next several chapters of the books of, book of Acts, you see the names Paul or, or Paul and Barnabas side by side. Initially, it's Barnabas and Paul as Barnabas is mentoring Paul and taking him around and vouching for him. But then it shifts, and then it is Paul and Barnabas as Paul then takes over the growth and the leading in the early church. But it's because of Barnabas. People doubted that what Paul said it happened, had actually happened. In their mind, they see an individual who was responsible for the stoning of the beloved Stephen, but now this individual's coming in. They don't want to accept him. In a way, they were standing in the way of what God was wanting to do. Let me give you number eight. In the midst of all of this, the church continued to grow. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea Galilee and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Notice this last last phrase, and it increased in numbers. With everything going on, the church flourished. With everything going on, the church grew. The persecution did not slow it down. Why? Because Christians continued to proclaim Christ. The confusion and the distrust of Paul did not slow it down. Why? Because Barnabas was willing to stand up and take Paul under his wing. The, 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 the chaos of the region and Christians fearing for their lives, none of this slowed down the growth of the church. Why? Because God was at work. And let me just say very clearly, when God is at work, nothing can stand in the way. When God is at work in a church and when the church is in tune with who God is and what God is doing and when the church walks in the fear of God, actively pursuing the mission that God has given it, there is nothing that will stand in the way. See, the problem that you and I have is that God, that we may have, is that God has a clearly defined mission and there is something that God is doing. There's people that God wants a relationship with and he has called you and I to pursue that mission. And this morning we're at the crossroads. Will I trust and obey 
or will I lean on my understanding? I said this in the early service, and I believe it. God wants to use our church to accomplish great things for him. I believe this. I hope you do. That God has a plan for us. Y'all believe that? And the one thing that can get in the way of that plan being accomplished is if you and I ignore the example of Saul, we ignore the example of Barnabas, and we say, you know what, I'm going to trust in my own understanding. The way that God will work in and through us. I mean, if we are willing to trust God, there is nothing that will hinder us. There is nothing that will stand in the way of what God is wanting to do. But you and I have to make the decision that says, I will follow God in my life and as a church, even when I do not understand, I want God's mission to be accomplished. And so I will pursue that. And when it doesn't make sense, I will obey. And when I don't have all the information, I will trust. See, our willingness to follow God and do what God has called us to do is directly connected to our willingness to trust in who God is and what his word has said. And so the question this morning is this, do you trust God? Do you really trust God enough to where you are willing to step out in faith when God leads you, even though you may not understand Are you willing as a church to say, we trust God so much and we believe so strongly in what God is doing and what God is calling us as a church to do that we're willing to obey and we're willing to follow even when we don't have all the information and even when we're not sure how it's going to turn out and even though circumstances may not be exactly perfect, we want God's will to be done so we will follow God with everything that we have. We will trust and then we will obey. And you will not be willing to do that as a church if you are not first willing to do that in your life. It's great to stand up and say, I want to go to a church that's willing to step out in faith and trust God and follow God. But the only way to have a church that is willing to do that is for it to be filled with people, individuals, and families who are willing to do that. And so what some of you may need to do this morning is to be very honest with yourself and say, you know what, maybe the reason why I have not been completely obedient to God is because I have not been completely trusting God. And today that needs to change. Today you need to stand up and say, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Follow him, trust him, live in obedience to him. That's what we need to do as a church And that's what you need to do as individuals and families. Will you stand with me? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And I want to challenge you. However God is speaking to your heart this morning, I want you to respond. Maybe in this message you realize that you've not been as committed to the church as you need to be. Maybe you saw the example of Paul in baptism. He's like, you know what? I'm saved, but I've never been baptized. Or maybe this morning you simply need to say, I want to trust and I want to obey. However God is speaking to you, let me encourage you to respond. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that guides us, your word that instructs us, your word that challenges and convicts us. And God, I pray this morning that we would make the changes in our life that you want us to make so that we can walk closer with you and so that your mission will be accomplished in us and through us. God, I pray that you would help us to see how you're leading us and how you're speaking to us so that we can respond correctly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.